man, and, and what you see uh, is what you get, but there's a lot more besides. So, Father, we thank you for David. We thank you for his faithfulness. We thank you for the abilities and the calling you've given to him. And we look forward to hearing what you have to say through him now. Thank you, Father. Anoint him with your spirit again, that he would bring your word to us. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Well, uh, two days ago, on the 15th of March, what I hope you would agree is good news came out of the British Parliament. A new law came into force. One of the MPs who supported this new law was Jacob Rees-Mogg, but its main sponsor was Greg Knight, who first introduced the bill, which has now become law, into Parliament in July 2017. And finally, after 20 months, this new law is on the statute book. I'm referring, as some of you may have recognized, to the Parking Code of Practice Act 2019. <laughs> this new law will create a code of practice about the operation and management of private parking facilities. It will provide guidance on appeals against parking charges, and it will establish an independent appeals service. Now, the good news is that if private parking management operators fail to comply with the new code, they won't be able to get details of the registered keepers of vehicles from the DVLA, which will effectively prevent them from collecting fines and penalties from drivers. Now, you might wonder, how big a problem is this? Well, uh, how many vehicle keeper records do you think parking management companies obtain from the DVLA? Well, back in 2007 to 8, it was about half a million. But last financial year, 2017 to 18, it was more than five and a half million, 11 times as much, and about one in six of all the cars in the UK. So, the good news is, folks, that the law should, in due course, put an end to, to these kind of practices. Ghost ticketing. Where they put a ticket on the car, they take a photograph of it, they remove the ticket from the car, and then because the driver failed to pay, they can charge a higher fine. Hence the headline on Friday, legislation aimed at putting parking cowboys out of business becomes law. Now, some of you might be wondering, so hang on. <laughs> uh, wasn't this church and uh, wasn't there some, some passage we read? Um, well, yes, I've been asked to speak about the story of Zacchaeus, which we had read to us earlier uh, and which you can see uh, on the screens up there. Um, and it's about Zacchaeus, who is described as a tax collector. And I was trying to think, well, what might an equivalent job be in the UK today? And I thought, well, maybe the kind of person that enforces parking fines against motorists might be comparable. It's not the kind of job that sort of makes people very friendly towards you, uh, unless, of course, you've recently had a ticket and want a bit of advice on, you know, might there be a way around it. 
Um, but in fact, of course, Zacchaeus, as you see in the text, is not just a tax collector. He's a chief tax collector. So I suppose that might be like being the chief executive of a company which enforces collection of fines and penalties issued by private management companies uh, against motorists. Now back to Zacchaeus. Of course, they didn't have cars in Jesus' day, uh, and my guess is that the parking of donkeys and camels didn't cause such a problem then. But here's how the tax system worked in those days. Palestine was ruled by the Romans, and they farmed out the task of collecting taxes to, uh, in any particular area of the, the country to the highest bidder. So the successful bidder collected as much money as they could so that they'd have an ample rake-off after paying the Roman authorities the appointed amount that they'd agreed. So Zacchaeus was such a tax farmer. And uh, he probably, being a chief tax collector, employed tax laborers to work on his tax farm, and he retained much of the surplus that they harvested from the local population. So no surprise, he's described as wealthy. Apparently, there's one uh, Roman writer who tells us that once in his life he saw a monument to an honest tax collector. <laughs> yep, an honest specimen of this renegade profession was so rare that they built a monument to him. Or, or, or possibly he was so rich that he paid for his own monument describing himself as honest. So imagine, if you will, that HM Revenue and Customs had been privatized, and now the tax authorities consist of businesses whose profits depend on how much tax and national insurance contributions they extract from you and me. Well, we might not feel hugely enamored by the employees of those companies, especially if they were allowed to exercise a little bit of discretion in how much tax to levy on us. In Jesus' day, such tax collectors, private tax collectors, were despised. I suppose in our day, they'd be the kind of people who got trolled on Twitter uh, and things like that. But here's the amazing thing. Jesus seems to have had a particular place in his heart for these kinds of people. For a start, one of his disciples was a tax collector, Levi or Matthew, uh, whom Jesus calls to follow him when Matthew was actually sitting at his tax collector's table or booth. And the reaction at the time went like this. Why do you, Jesus, eat with tax collectors and sinners? And later, in Luke's account of the life of Jesus, Jesus himself says that people complained that he was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, by the way, some old translations of the Bible sometimes use the word publican to describe Zacchaeus' job. So just to be clear, that word comes from the word referring to public revenue. And it has nothing to do with someone who runs a pub. <laughs> so anyway, perhaps Zacchaeus had heard about Jesus. He'd heard of this man who was favorably inclined towards parking enforcement officials. I mean, tax collectors like him. 
And Zacchaeus may have had some sense of hope that despite his job, which made him so unpopular, of course, the famous teacher, Jesus, might be worth seeing. So Zacchaeus lived, we learn, in Jericho, a place with a very long history. It's one of the oldest inhabited cities in the world. It's also one of the lowest. It's about 250 meters below sea level. And today, Jericho is uh, in the West Bank part of Palestine. It has a population of something around 20,000, so it's about the size of Amersham. In those days, though, of course, its population would have been a bit smaller, so say about the size of Little Chalfont. And historically, from the Bible, we know that Jericho is the site of an ancient city that had experienced problems with its um, occasionally unreliable walls. Uh, as Joshua was leading the Israelites across the Jordan to enter the Promised Land in the 13th century. Four centuries later, and Jericho is the place where Elijah and Elisha went uh, as Elisha inherited Elijah's ministry. And much later, the Babylonians, the people from modern-day Iraq, captured Zedekiah, the last king of Israel, around the year 587 B.C., in the plains of Jericho, and the city was, was sacked. And this later city that Zacchaeus is living in is about 10 miles northwest of the Dead Sea and about 17 miles northeast of Jerusalem. And it's in the, Jericho, the, the Jordan Plain, the, the plain where the River Jordan runs through into the Dead Sea. And it was a fertile area. Uh, it was sometimes called the City of Palms. It had balsam groves. Uh, Herod the Great built a winter palace in the vicinity. And we also know from this story, of course, famously, that it had sycamore trees. Now, just to be clear for the botanists among you, the tree in this story has the Latin name Ficus sycamorus. And it is not to be confused with the European sycamore, which has a completely different name, Asa pseudoplantanus. I think I got that right. So the kind of sycamore fig tree, which is how it's now translated to remind us it's not what we think of around here as a sycamore tree, that kind of sycamore fig tree was, here's an example of a quote about it, a sturdy tree about 15 meters high with a short trunk widely spreading branches and evergreen leaves. It was abundant in Egypt and the uh, lowlands of Palestine and had edible fruits. So no wonder Zacchaeus would use it as a tree to climb up. Not too tall, nice trunk to, to climb up, evergreen leaves, lots of branches. And as the story tells us, he was a short man and couldn't see Jesus because of the crowd. Now, obviously, that's not a particular problem I'm familiar with, uh, though uh, I have become more conscious of it over the last 35 years or so. <laughs> now, let's put this story in the context in which Luke tells it. So the first phase of Jesus' ministry is up in the north of the country, the north of Israel, around Nazareth and Lake Galilee. Then he travels gradually south, meandering his way down, teaching and healing and doing all kinds of amazing things. And at this point, he's coming to the end of that second phase of his ministry before he goes to Jerusalem for the third and final phase. 
Now, in the previous chapter, chapter 18, Jesus has told a parable about a religious leader and a parking and a Pharisee and a tax collector, in which the tax collector is the hero. And now Zacchaeus is another tax collector. And in the next story in uh, Luke 18, Jesus tells a ruler, perhaps a, a local council leader, to give away his money. And the ruler goes away sad because he's very wealthy and doesn't want to do that. And Jesus asserts that it's very hard for a rich person to join God's kingdom. And by contrast, now in this story, Zacchaeus is a rich man who does gain salvation, albeit at the price of most of his wealth. And Jesus, uh, just before this encounter with Zacchaeus, has an, uh, meets a blind man called Bartimaeus and restores his sight. And perhaps we can see in this story that Zacchaeus gains his, say, spiritual sight into the real value of money and how to use it. Now, when Jesus called Matthew, Levi, at the beginning of Luke's gospel, he called him away from his tax-collecting desk to come and follow Jesus. But with Zacchaeus, it's a bit different. Jesus invites himself to follow, Jesus, to follow Zacchaeus to his home. And as was the case with Matthew in the north of the country, so here with Zacchaeus in the south of the country, the people don't like Jesus fraternizing with tax collectors. And you can imagine that the tweets and the Facebook posts with pictures of Jesus alongside Zacchaeus were doing the rounds. But Zacchaeus isn't put off by this social media reaction. On the contrary, he volunteers an incredible demonstration of generosity. Half his wealth goes to the poor. It's almost as if he died and in his will, half of his wealth goes, of his estate goes to charity. And in some sense, of course, Zacchaeus has died. The old Zacchaeus dies in this story, and the new Zacchaeus uh, comes to life. Now, what about today? Well, 190 of the richest people on the planet have made what's called the giving pledge, that they will give the majority of their wealth away to philanthropic or charitable causes. Uh, anyone is welcome to join them. The eligibility criterion is simple. You must be a billionaire. Now, of course, if you've got that much money, uh, you'll still have quite a lot left, even if you give 99% of it away. So you don't need to worry about the people that have signed up to the giving pledge. You know, people like Bill and Melinda Gates or Richard Branson or Stelios are not going to be down to their last million. But at least they have pledged to give at least half of their wealth away. Now, thinking about this story, being a sort of mildly numerate person, I, I find it a bit intriguing. So, Zacchaeus has a pledge, and he pledges, half my money I'm going to give away. Okay, so that's half gone, we've got half left. And then he says, if anyone's cheated, if he's cheated anyone, he'll give four times as much back. So let's say that 10% of his wealth came from cheating. Okay, so he's got to give another 40% away. So he's now only got 10% left. Now you can see where this is going. 
Because if he'd gained more than 12.5% of his wealth from cheating, uh, how is he going to give away more than half of it? Because that's more than 50%, and he's already given 50% away. Well, either I'm being a bit too literal, or he must have been reasonably honest and confident that his cheating was pretty limited, and no more than 12.5% of his wealth came from cheating other people. But what about our theme of generosity? I mean, at first sight, it certainly looks like this is basically a story about money and being generous with money. And indeed, it is a story about being generous with money. But we can also think about it wider than that. Uh, And indeed, I was asked to connect this story to the theme of power. Well, there are various kinds of power that all of us might have. I mean, there's physical power, not terribly well represented here. Uh, You know, strength and brute force. Um, There's personality power, the ability to project ourselves in a situation. There's authority, power given to us by others. There's the capabilities we have inherited or learned or developed that can give us capacity to do things. There's resources such as money that we've earned or inherited or gained by chance. There are relationships and connections, you know, who you know. There's reputation. What's the quality of your your reputation that gives you more power to influence things? Or in the case of celebrities, perhaps it's more what's the the quantity rather than the quality uh, of your, your followers that gives you some power in this world. Well, Zacchaeus had been given authority by the Romans to collect taxes. Uh, He had the capability to collect them. Through this, he'd amassed considerable financial wealth, and he had relationships and connections with the Romans authorities, which added to his power. And he would have been a known figure, at least in Jericho. The people knew who he was and what he did, which is why they objected when Jesus went round to his house. Power is linked, I mean, on the one hand, to being able to influence others, and on the other hand, to have control over them. So I have, uh, my main job is being chief executive of a a secretariat that uh, supports a group called the elders, nothing to do with the elders here. Um, And in that role, I have some element of control, though it doesn't always feel like that, as many of you who found yourselves in positions of management actually don't feel uh, uh, all that much uh, in control, and that's certainly true from other people I've spoken to in similar positions. Um, I also have a a non-executive role on the board of a company called Drax, where I'm a non-executive. So I have some influence rather than control. I can't make decisions, but I might be able to influence decisions that are made. As a parent of a baby or a young child, you have at least some degree of control over them and their lives, even if, again, it doesn't always feel like that when they're screaming their heads off at three in the morning. And as they get older, that reduces, but you continue to have some influence over them. And I guess the challenge of the story of Zacchaeus includes this uh, question. How are we going to use the power we have, whatever it may be, however much or little it may be, in a generous way. 
how will the exercise of whatever power you have make a positive difference to the lives of others? So just take a moment now to think about where your power lies. Can you influence other people? Or do you have some degree of control over other people's lives? What money do you have? Maybe that also gives you some influence or control. What connections and relationships do you have that give you access where others maybe can't go? What capabilities do you have that mean that you can make a difference? When, Jesus encounter, when Zacchaeus encountered Jesus, the outcome was that Zacchaeus gave up most of the power he had, in this case through his wealth. I wonder if you can think of an example where you've used whatever power you have to change things for the better, and perhaps in the process had to give up some power to others. Uh, I remember about uh, 22 years ago, I was uh, working as the finance director of a company called Field Group. Uh, it was a packaging company. Uh, and uh, I was uh, phoning a friend of mine called Nigel, who I'd been at university with, uh, to see if he was going to come to a reunion dinner. Uh, and he wasn't. Um, he worked for Oxfam, and he was about to go abroad with Oxfam, so he couldn't come. Um, anyway, he said on the phone, uh, I've been meaning to contact you, he said, because Oxfam's looking for a new finance director, and I think you should apply. Now, I, I knew Nigel pretty well. Uh, I'd, I'd led a, a, a group with him at, at uh, college, and he's, he's quite an intense kind of guy, you know? So it was... And I think you should apply. <laughs> well, there was a process. I did apply. There was a more process and more process. In the end, I, I got that job. So there was Nigel using his capabilities, his personality, his relationship with me to say something which just shifted the course of my life. But for me, at least, all this raises a question. If I use my power generously, does it actually make a difference? I mean, do our actions matter, or is the future already predetermined? For if the future is already fixed, in what sense do I have any power to make any difference? Now, of course, we know as Christians that God made the universe, and it's clear that God knows about the future, and indeed, he's told us some things about what the future hold, holds. But does that mean, as it's put in the uh, uh, rock opera Jesus Christ Superstar, that everything is fixed and you can't change it? Well, Christians and philosophers have been grappling with these questions for centuries. And indeed, I guess most of us have at some time wondered whether we do make real decisions or whether what we think we decide is in fact determined by our genes or our upbringing or our experiences or our brain state um, or indeed does God directly determine every decision we make? And if any of those other things do determine our decisions, are we really responsible for them? If, if God determines our actions, in what sense are they really ours? So I want to share how I think about these questions, and in particular, how I look at the tension between us humans having real choices that make real decisions with real consequences, while recognizing that God is involved in shaping the future. Now, I should emphasize, 
other ways of understanding this are also available. Um, and there are plenty of Christians, including no doubt some here, who wouldn't be comfortable with how I look at it. So you'll, you should reflect and consider whether my way of looking at it is consistent with what we know of God from the life and teaching of Jesus and the Bible, and whether it's helpful. Anyway, I've brought along a visual aid to illustrate this, um, how I think the decisions we take make a difference to the future while acknowledging that God shapes it. And back here we have the visual aid. Now, I hope you can see it, and we also need to use an additional aid because one of the wheels is missing. <laughs> right. Now, some of you will know, and oh, we need to move this to so as you can see it. Um, hmm, yeah, it's a bit of an angle, isn't it? Well, that's your fault for sitting at the side. Um, <laughs> okay, so th this is Connect 4. So the first thing to say is we're not playing Connect 4, okay? It's just that this happens to provide an opportunity to, to try and illustrate what I'm, I'm trying to get at. Let's see if it helps. So don't worry about the, the reds along the bottom. Uh, or that red at the top. I just needed to put those there because of the, the, the relative mix of reds and yellows. So the idea is that here on this side, that's your right, isn't it? Mm, maybe it should be the other way. Oh, ah, ah brilliant. <laughs> Who did that? Excellent. Thank you. Um, actually, maybe we... Hmm. Right, well, time, time is going this way. I know time normally goes that way, but it does for me go that way. <laughs> so you have to just imagine that. And the idea is that each of these here represents a state of the world. And in particular, this red one here, this is the state of the world at the beginning of this sequence, okay? And the next lot represents the next state of the world, okay? And from this red here, someone has a decision to make. And they can either go to that red or they can go to that red. Okay, so they've got a choice, this way or that way. Simple decision, you know, do you smile at someone in the street? Uh, do you pick up that bit of rubbish that your mum said you should put in the bit, whatever. Or it might be a big decision, you know, are you gonna apply for that new job or whatever. So there's a decision to take and it goes here or here. So let's say that this, the decision is to go here. So we now have a new state of the world where that decision's been taken this way and we're now here. So now, let's see if I can get this right. We now have a state of the world here, which is where we are. And now there's another decision that someone has to take. Might not be the same person, might be somebody else. So we could end up here or here. So let's say we go to this one here. And you should be getting the hang of this now. In fact, soon I should be able to ask you whether I should put in a red or a yellow, and you should know. Okay. So now we've gone to, uh, to here. Did I say? Yes, that's right. So we were here. So we've another decision choice. Do we go here or here? We've gone here. So we've got another state of the world with another set of decisions. And as you can see, it carries on. We've now got another decision state here. We can go here or here. Let's say we go down this time. Okay, we've got another set of decisions to take. 
and let's say we go here. So this is the state of the world with all those particular decisions having been taken. And our final one will look like, uh, whoops, that. Yes, right. Okay, and so maybe we end up here. So all those states of the world, someone makes a decision and that takes us to a new state of the world where that decision's been taken as opposed to the alternative. But here's the thing. I mean, you can get to that point there through quite a number of routes here. So God could be involved in shaping where he wants to take things without forcing every individual single little decision. Now, this, this here is a pretty simple version of this. Okay, how long did that take to go from there to there? That might be maybe a couple of seconds or a minute. So the real version of this is of billions of decisions being taken by humans around the world every second. So imagine how complicated this is. I mean, it's 3D for a start. Okay, it's a massive thing with all the possible decisions that people could take. But God made the world, so hey, he can, he can imagine all these possibilities. So what this means, if, if, if that illustration helps to, to capture this idea, is that God is involved in perhaps nudging this decision here to go that way, if this one here went that way and that one went that way. But if this one had gone this way, he might nudge it some other way. So God is not just out there watching, observing, not involved, but nor is he just determining every individual decision we make so that we have no choices. It doesn't, it's not really real decisions that we make. Let me try and summarize this understanding of God and how he acts in the world he created. God in grace grants humans significant freedom to cooperate with or work against God's will for their lives. And he enters into dynamic give-and-take relationships with us. The Christian life involves a genuine interaction between God and human beings. We respond to God's gracious initiatives, and God responds to our responses, and we respond, and it goes on. And God takes risks in this give-and-take relationship, and yet he is endlessly resourceful and competent in working toward his ultimate goals. Sometimes God alone decides how to accomplish these goals. On other occasions, he works with human decisions, adapting his own plans to fit the changing situation. God is open to receiving input from his creatures, and in loving dialogue, God invites us to participate with him to bring his future into being. So back to the story of Zacchaeus. I believe that Zacchaeus really made the decision to be generous and to give half his wealth away. He had a real choice. And while he was influenced by many things, including, of course, what Jesus had done in befriending him, it was still his decision. So was God at work here? Well, of course he was. Jesus was there, inviting himself to Zacchaeus' house, demonstrating his acceptance of Zacchaeus as a person, even if he didn't approve of what he did. And that may well have inspired Zacchaeus to do what he did. But in the end, it was Zacchaeus who decided to do what he did. Whereas 
the rich ruler in the previous chapter of Luke's gospel, he went away sad because he chose not to act positively in response to the challenge which Jesus gave him. And so with us, we face choices about how generous we will be, and in doing so, how we will influence the future. Knowing that God will still be nudging and shaping the world's future, whatever we do, but that he will do so using the choices that we and others make. So the challenge we face from this story is a real one. What difference will we make to the f- how the future develops? What contribution can we bring to the way God wants to shape the future of the lives of others and of the planet we share? Right at the end of the story, uh, maybe we can put the uh, text back up, Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. And in one sense, of course, salvation has, in the form of Jesus, come literally to Zacchaeus' house. It is Jesus who came to seek and to save the lost, as he says at the end. But Zacchaeus' decision to change, demonstrated by the actions he commits to take, also indicates that salvation has come for him. He is a changed man. Jesus is seeking and saving. The encounter that Zacchaeus has with Jesus leads him to decide to be generous, to give up power generously, to change and never to be the same again. So the future awaits. The question is, what contribution will our generosity with our money and with all the kinds of power we have, what will our contribution generously make to shaping that future in the way that God wants the world to be? Thank you. Thank you. Told you there was a lot there, didn't I? Yeah, and you didn't believe me. You gave me that look. But thank you, David. That was that was tremendous. Ben. I'm just going to share a brief testimony, God's provision, and 